0: Uh, friends, I'm going to invite Rebecca McLaughlin, our speaker for today, come and join us. Uh, would you please give her a warm welcome? <laughs> There's no running, don't worry. <laughs> Rebecca, welcome to Barney's. It's so great to have you here. You're very, very welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks nice for um, having me. Now, in preparation for your visit, I did some background research on you. Uh, according to the interwebs... Uh, you have which a, never lie. Which never lie. Um, you have a PhD in English, though I understand Renaissance literature. Is that right? From Cambridge University, you, where you were also a student athlete in both rowing and soccer, soccer football. I appreciate we need to distinguish sometimes, and that you also competed in the comedy debating society there.
1: Just, I mean. Here's the thing. You know, when you're writing up your CV or your resume, you're like, put all the things in that could possibly sound good. Football in England for girls when I was growing up was just like not a thing. Mm. So I played for my college. I live in America now, and and women's football is like really big in America. And so if I say, oh, I, I captained my college football team, they're like, oh, my goodness, you must be amazing. I'm like, no, I can just sort of kick the ball, maybe, you know?
0: I I, I am curious as to what employer is going to have the deal sealed by Comedy Debating Society. That is, they're going to be scrolling through the CV. They'll hit that and they'll go, done. This is the thing we've been missing. But let me keep going. You have a master's equivalent theological degree from Oak Hill College. You spent nine years working for Veritas Forum as vice president of content. You founded your own communications consulting firm. Um, you're married, you have three children, your other babies include, I think, four, or five best-selling books, plus, like, just, like, uh, uh, like you know, there were like, more books with your names than I've had hot breakfasts on Amazon. Um, I, I was left wondering, can you please give me one reason why people like me shouldn't just despair of my productivity and go back to bed?
1: Well, you told me you got up at 5am to go kayaking this morning, so I was sound asleep yeah, at but that point. that
0: was point. just a flex. That was just... Yeah. <laughs> OK. Um... Okay, um, if, if you could, a I, I, couple more get to know you questions, right? Because that was just really me riffing. Um, uh, if you could only watch Barbie or Oppenheimer, <laughs> which one and why?
1: I have watched neither and I plan to watch neither. Is that bad?
0: Um, can you tell us what's the best book you've read in the last year?
1: Ooh, in the last year. Um... Gosh, I read so many interesting books. Uh, I read a book called Clara and the Sun, which was a weird book about... It was sort of set in a semi-dystopian future where parents would buy an artificial friend for their teenage kids, and the book is told from the perspective of an artificial friend. And it's one of those books you kind of get halfway through and you're sort of thinking, yeah, this is okay, and then suddenly things happen. You're like, oh, I have to rethink everything from the beginning again.
0: I feel like it's so, important because I know there are some families in the inner West who, hearing the first half of that account, would go, where can I find such an artificial friend? <laughs> um, uh, what's one item that is still on your bucket list?
1: Ooh, well, so here's the thing. I'm like a terrible interviewee with these kinds of questions because I that, basically That's why care. I sent
0: them through to Kayleigh Payne on Wednesday, but I reckon they didn't make their way through to you, so <laughs> you can blame her. <laughs>
1: um, I basically care about people and ideas and anything else i'm like nice to, you know nice okay great but i'm not like i'm a terrible tourist because i'm never there to see the thing or to have the experience i'm there because i wanted to be with a person who i was with or to do whatever ministry that was so I'm, yeah, I'm kind of a boring person to be honest um unless you want to talk about people or ideas i i have i have nothing in my brain um, um
0: what what is the person that you most want to discuss an idea with?
1: <laughs> well, I love. It's actually fun um, this trip because my my husband and my kids are, have come with me, and my my best friend Rachel, who does who also writes books and talks about stuff, um, and she is probably my favourite person to discuss ideas with. She's one of the people who tells me that I'm wrong on a very regular basis. Um, which is, you know, sometimes a little discouraging because it's nice to be right occasionally. uh, I
0: I, I tell people I like those people in my life. I don't really. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Well, that's how you and I are different.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A bit more seriously, um, one of the things that you've written about is that you grew up with, uh, with a family where your mother was from a Catholic background, your father was from Church of England, but they were also at the time that you as a child and into early teenage years were wrestling with your own journey of faith, they also were on their own uh, path of exploration. What was that like?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I actually got to speak at my grandpa's funeral a couple of weeks ago in in England, um, and he had had been to Catholic Church all all his life. Um, But from the conversations I had had with him, I was I was quite discouraged, you know, over the years um, by his responses when I would, you know, talk to him about Jesus and um, Jesus' death and resurrection and the, some of the the core um, essentials of the Christian faith. He seemed actually quite skeptical of. Um, so yeah, I come from a, a kind of mixed family where there are some people who went to church because it was just the sort of thing that you did as a person of their background, and other people who actually believed. and And growing up. I could tell you the story of my childhood where you think, oh, you know, this was a perfect, idyllic English childhood. And I could tell you the story where you think, oh, my goodness, like, she'd need a lot of therapy after all of those, those things. So um, from quite early on, I would say from about when I was nine, I felt very sure about Jesus. I felt sure that he was the only person who I knew couldn't just be here today and gone tomorrow. And I knew that following Jesus involved trying to share your faith with other people. Like, I, I knew it, it, it couldn't just be a, a sort of private thing, um, but that actually anyone who's, who's following Jesus is given the job of, of sharing the message of, of the gospel um, with anyone they, they come into contact with. So, um, yeah, I, I think unlike some people who, who may have sort of grown up in a Christian home and felt like, well, their parents had the faith, and they were taught the faith, but it actually took them a while to kind of get on board or not. Or, you know, sometimes it can, be, it can be a difficult process to find your own faith in that context. I think I almost had the opposite experience of knowing that everyone was sort of trying to figure stuff out um, and that I, I just needed Jesus from quite early on.
0: Before we press on, you'll notice that... Uh... Up on the screen is a phone number. Um, At the end of this, we'll have a little bit of time uh, where I'll put some questions to Rebecca from the congregation. So uh, if you have any questions along the way, I I suspect we won't get through all of them, but we might be able to do as we usually do at Barney's in Q&A is send out uh, further responses during the week. Uh, But feel free to do that uh, now or uh, as we proceed. Um, You talked about this happening from the age of nine, which is a you know, like a wonderfully early time to have that deep sense of conviction, not only the love of God, but also your place in his purposes in a sense. Um, you've also been quite uh, open about the fact that for as long as you can remember, you've been also attracted to women. And uh, for many people, those two things uh, are saying, uh, they sit uncomfortably alongside one another, though we also have people within this congregation for whom that's not true, um, could you, you know, maybe tell us um, how did you navigate the path of those two things together?
1: Yeah, so so like you said, as long as I can basically as long as I can remember, I've been a Christian, and as long as I can remember, I've been attracted to other women. And and I think um, growing up um, with that experience, I just I sort of hope it would be something I grow out of. To be honest, I, I went to an all girls school. And I was like, maybe I just haven't met enough guys. Um, I was pretty sure, I was like, okay, when I go to university, I'm definitely going to start falling in love with guys. And then like, I don't know, a couple of weeks in, I was like having feelings for my female Bible study teacher, leader, and I was like, oh gosh. Um, And then by the time I went to to grad school, started doing my PhD, at that point, I thought, do you know what, you can't, once you're in your sort of mid-twenties, you can't really tell yourself that you're going to grow out of something anymore. You know, you sort of got to the point where like, oh, maybe this is sort of a little bit here to stay. Um, I think in in my mind, it it was never actually a question for me whether the Bible allowed for same-sex marriage for Christians. Um, And and the more that I have, the more I've studied the Bible on these questions, the more more I've actually been, it's been very clear to me, the Bible does not allow for same-sex marriage for Christians. So I think, you know, some people with my experience sort of growing up have thought, okay, you know, maybe I can have Jesus and same-sex romantic relationship. Um, I think there's a very clear no in the Bible to that. But as I've sort of gone on processing that, gone on thinking through um, what the Bible Bible says, I think I've more and more understood why, like what what even is the purpose of marriage for Christians. And I think, you might think, well, that's a stupid question. The purpose of marriage is for two people to make each other happy and have children, right? I mean, that's what our world would say. And that, and that to say to somebody, do you know what? You're not going to get married for whatever reason, maybe because you're exclusively attracted to your same sex and the Bible says no to that, or maybe because you'd hope to marry somebody and you haven't had that opportunity for whatever reason. If you don't get married, you've sort of missed out on the thing. Like that is the big, that's the pinnacle of Human experience, that's the thing. Every Christian kid is raised to think, you know, one day, of course, you'll, you'll meet your person and get married. But if you, if you look at what the Bible says, uh, you'll find that there is this incredible picture, this metaphor, this image that starts up in the Old Testament of God presented as a loving, faithful husband as Israel has often unfaithful wife. And it's like this marriage is in crisis because God's people are always sort of cheating on him with other fake gods. And then Jesus shows up. And one of the many strange things that Jesus says about himself is that he says he's the bridegroom. It's a very weird comment to make for a man who never got married in his life on earth. So what's Jesus talking about? It's actually one of the ways in which he's stepping into the shoes of the creator God of the Old Testament. Jesus is... God in the flesh, He's come to claim God's people for himself. We see this then later in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 5, he describes Christian marriage as like a little scale model of Jesus' love for his church. And then at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see this massive shout going up. The wedding of the Lamb has come. And we see Jesus' marriage to his church bringing heaven and earth back together. So this is actually why marriage is male-female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles in marriage. Like Christ and the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it's a life-creating, flesh-uniting, never-ending, exclusive love. So Christian marriage, at its best, is meant to point us to Christ. Christ but it's also meant to disappoint us. Because even the best human romance could only ever be a tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. And I think as I've needed to think through that um, personally and think through, you know, if I were not a Christian, I would most likely have pursued a romantic relationship with another woman. So I've had to think through that. I've had to remind myself of the thing that I think all of us actually married or or single or widowed or divorced or whatever situation you find yourself in today. If you're a follower of Jesus, the real thing is relationship with him that we will ultimately experience in all its fullness when he returns. And any human relationship we might have at its very best will be a little pointer to that. It's, it's like if there are, I know there are some kids still left in the room, many of them gone downstairs, but like, it's like if a kid is playing with a a toy doll, and they really love that doll, and it's like a, you know they're very fond, they enjoy playing with the doll. And if we said to the kid, "Hey, do you know one day you might have a a real baby?", they'd be like, "Oh no, I'm I'm kind of happy with my doll. I, I, the idea of having a baby of my own, that just sort of seemed like seems like a lot." But then if they if they grew up and you said, "Oh, you know, by the way, because you wanted that doll when you're a baby, you can't have the." Uh, when you're a kid, you can't have the baby. We were like, wait, wait a minute, they weren't old enough to make that decision. You know, they didn't know what the real thing was. They didn't know the little doll was just like an imitation of the real thing. And so it is, I think, with Christian marriage that is at its best a pale imitation of the real thing. And we in church, sorry, this is a long answer. I'll shut up in a second. We in church have often bought in to what folks outside church believe, which is that, Sexual romantic love is the thing, and that that is what you know your your identity, your fulfillment, your joy, all of your love needs to come from this this one thing and Actually if we're Christians, that thing at its very best is like a signpost it 's not a destination.
0: Um, I guarantee people want to hear you more than me, so that 's fine um, there, there's actually a, a beautiful couple here who. Uh, asked me at their wedding to preach on Revelation, that time when uh, none of us will be married because all of us will be, which I thought was very generous that on the day when we should be celebrating their marriage, they wanted us to actually celebrate a time when we'd all be included, which was quite beautiful.
1: I don't think it's generous, I think it's biblical. <laughs> so well this done, This is you why I don't are. like
0: people telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> um, I, I want to come back to some of these things. It would be I think it would be easy in our highly polarised, swift-to-react world to, you know, frame some of what you've said as being the product of just having lived within a bubble. And yet, um, from what I know, um, uh, know Australia is an extremely secular culture, um, and yet your experiences, you, you, you went through secular schooling growing up, you've been at some fairly vigorously... You know, secular institutions in your many, many years of university study. Um, can I ask, like, as you have moved through those worlds, um, what has uh, fed your faith and um, enabled you to remain close to and grow in your love of uh, this God of whom you've been speaking?
1: Yeah, it's funny. People sometimes think um, that because I've spent quite a lot of time not only reading books by kind of atheists and agnostics, but also being in relationship with like very intelligent people who have no time for the Christian faith at all, Um, that that's probably will be a challenge to my faith. Like surely, you know, cause me to question the truth about Jesus. I've actually found the the opposite to be true. The more I've really listened to what some of the leading atheists and agnostic thinkers are saying, the more clear to me it has become that either Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or there is absolutely no point to your life or mine at all. You know, honestly, all of us might as well go home and, like, spend the rest of our lives in bed or or worse if if Jesus is not who he says he is. And I think there's, a, there's an assumption that people often make that there's, you know, Christianity over here, which believes you've got to believe all this crazy stuff about people rising from the dead. You've got to be, believe all this offensive stuff about sex-only belonging and male-female marriage. Like, there's so much... <clears throat> Weird and wonderful stuff that you believe if you're a Christian. And you're choosing between that crazy stuff and a perfectly kind of coherent secular worldview that does all the work that Christianity does without having to believe in the crazy things. And there is no such thing. Um, Actually, one of the the most lovely things about my time in Australia so far is that um, a a dear friend of my husband's from back when we were all at Cambridge doing our PhDs who was also a, a friend of mine, she was dating one of my good friends at the time, um, who's a native of Sydney, um, named Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. If you if you haven't heard her story, it's, it's worth hearing. Um, she grew up in a, a secular, loving secular home in Sydney. She was like a bright star of Sydney University and won a university medal in history, got a scholarship to go to Cambridge. She'd always wanted to go to Cambridge. She went to Cambridge to do her PhD there. Um, and she was a convinced atheist when we were friends with her in, in Cambridge. And then she went to Oxford to do her postdoc work, and there she was really excited because there was going to be a lecture series by an Australian philosopher called Peter Singer. Which some of you might, might have heard of him. Um, he's an atheist, and he takes seriously the fact that you can't—if you're an atheist—you can't just sort of assume Christian ethics about universal human rights and equality. <clears throat> You've kind of got to build your own thing. So. So Peter Singer says that instead of treating all human beings as equal because they're human, that actually we should evaluate beings, human or otherwise, so including animals, according to their capacities, you know, like their capacity for suffering, the capacity for self-awareness, etc. And he calculates, you know, according to his framework, that a, a human infant is less morally valuable than an adult pig. And as my friend Sarah heard lecture, she sort of had this sense of Uh, almost vertigo, like intellectually, because she had thought that her atheism supported her deep belief in universal rights and equality, and that the strong and the rich and the powerful shouldn't trample on the weak and the poor and the marginalized. And, you know, everyone from the youngest to the oldest, from the the strongest to the weakest, was equally valuable and precious. And she realized, actually, no, her atheism didn't ground those beliefs at all. It sort of stuck a knife in the back of, of those beliefs and she ended up becoming a Christian. Now one of the, I don't know that there's probably somebody in your life who right now you'd think I could hardly imagine that person becoming a follower of Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been brought by a friend here today and you're like, do you know what? Like Christianity seems weird and not at all wonderful to me. Um, so last time my husband and I saw Sarah, it was about 20 years ago and she was not a Christian at all. And then we, we, flew here we're staying with her and her family and hearing her talk about her love for jesus it was like this sort of out-of-body experience of just pure delight um who's someone who's come to, to realize that you know somebody who had everything i mean truly like she's just ridiculously pretty you know like you just can't like you can imagine somebody had more than she did and she realized she had nothing without jesus
0: Uh, I know that one of the areas of work that you're now leaning into is thinking about friendship in particular. Um, And you've, I I, I think, uh, drawn our attention to the way in which uh, historically the church has had a a lot to say about marriage and and perhaps at certain periods marriage has been regarded as so central to the the fulfilment of human experience that it is the gold medal of life. uh, And it seems to me that at least since perhaps the Victorian era, you know, we've dropped the ball in our reflections on friendship, even though the Bible says, uh, paints very deep pictures of friendship. Um, uh, what is it that we've lost? Uh, what is it that we, we need to hear again about friendship?
1: Yes, you, you may know if, if you have read John's gospel that on the night that Jesus was betrayed to his death, He looked around at his disciples, and he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, honestly, in most churches, we would have ended the sentence differently. You know, we would have said, greater love has no one than this, than the love of a husband and a wife. Or maybe, greater love has no one than this, than the love of a mother for her children. But Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, he laid down his life for his friends. And I think one of the, the mistakes that we, in uh, many of us at least, in, in kind of modern Western church settings have made is not to recognize the, the great intimacy and um, brotherly and sisterly love that we are all called to if we are followers of Jesus we've sort of, as I was mentioning, we've kind of bought in to the idea that the only real intimacy happens in the context of romantic relationships or maybe parent-child relationships as sort of the other vector of that. And we have forgotten what the New Testament says about our relationships with each other. Um, And the language that the New Testament uses calls us brothers and sisters Calls us one body together. What We see Paul talking about individual brothers in Christ with this extraordinary intensity. So, for example, he calls his friend Onesimus in his letter to Philemon. He calls Anisimus his very heart. You can imagine if Mike stood up on you know, Sunday and uh, described one of his male friends here as like, so-and-so is my very heart. You'd be like, oh, it's a little bit intense. You know, a little like, settle down a bit there. It's a bit much. But no, that's the kind of language that the New Testament gives us as we as we think about our love for one another and i think the reason why one of the reasons why christian sexual ethics today can seem really kind of unattractive from the outside and sometimes unworkable from the inside is that we have forgotten biblical ethics when it comes to to love and community outside the nuclear family context we've sort of collapsed everything down into the husband and wife and you know 2.4 children we talk about coming to you know we come to church with our family if we have one and we sit with our family and if if we don't come to church with our family then we often actually feel really alone really lonely but no we've we've come to church this is our like my my immediate family has gone to another church no offense to you guys they couldn't be bothered to come all this way from where we are weird (laughs) Um, maybe they just didn't want to hear me yapping on um but like i'm here today with my family because that's you guys, right? So we have a deep theological reason to be together. And we can express that in intimate friendship. Now, because we're limited humans, we can't have the same level of, of knowledge and, and, and love between all of us. Because, you know, I can't know all of all of your inner thoughts. And, you know, li- I can't be involved in your lives and not you in mine. But all of us can make that investment in in a few people in our lives, actually, where we can experience what it is to be known at our best and at our worst and to be loved in spite of that, actually. Um, We can be family to one another. We can be um, the the people who show up for one another who we we can laugh together and, and cry together. And the way that this all connects back up to sexual ethics... Is that I often hear people say, you know, how can you, how can you say that somebody who is exclusively attracted to their same sex has to be lonely for the rest of their lives? You know, isn't it just like cruel to say that to, to a, a Christian? Shouldn't we rethink the Bible because we, we, we shouldn't be leaving people lonely? If that is the question we're asking, if, if single people in our church families are lonely... We're doing things very wrong. None of us, none of us. If you read through the book of Acts, one of the, you know, account of the earliest Christian movement, you find Christians suffering all sorts of things. They are being, you know, dragged out of prison. They're being executed for their faith in Jesus. There's one kind of suffering they're not experiencing, and that is loneliness. And it's our business, all of us, if we're followers of Jesus to make sure that our brothers and sisters in Christ are not experiencing that least Christian of all kinds of suffering. And I think often what we do is we kind of, we're tempted to sit around and think, you know, who's going to love me? In fact, as followers of Jesus, we need to flip that around and think, who can I love? We need to seek out the people who might have less relational love in their lives than, than followers of Jesus are, are called to. It's lovely. I'm glad that you guys were reading Matthew 19 today. Because at the end of that passage, when Peter says to Jesus, you know, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, whatever you've left, if you've left family, and for, for many Christians today, if, if you're living as a, a single person, you sort of maybe lost the opportunity of biological family for Jesus, you'll receive 100 times more that. Not only in the age to come, but actually here and now. And so, so we should be living like that in deep relationship with one another, um, in Christian community, and and in the closeness of, of friendship. And I'll say one last thing because I know I'm talking too much, but I think all like all of us would love to have like really deep friendships, right? And my guess is nobody would. If I said who who would not like to have really deep friendships, all of us want that. And we can kind of think, okay, the way to get a really deep friendship is to sort of watch as many films together as possible, like go kayaking as much, like just do the thing, like, find pleasurable things to do together. That's fine. it's nothing wrong with watching films or going, like the, all, all good stuff. But actually the New Testament gives us this vision of being like soldiers, like fellow soldiers with each other. And actually the greatest friendship intimacy in my life is built around gospel mission. So if you want close friendship, get alongside other people and serve Jesus together, and you'll find the the, bypro- the beautiful byproduct of being soldiers of Christ together is the kind of friendship that all of us really want.
0: Thanks, Rebecca. I've got some questions from the floor that I'm just going to kind of, jump into so um here's a question which is um why is gender so critical to the god as husband church's bride narrative why is it um uh that particular gender distinction um as opposed to relationships with say more fluid gender or sexual identities that function as signposts what is it about the gender that means that it does that better
1: yeah, so, so this sort of circles back to some of what I've been saying. The Bible gives us a, a range of different kinds of human relationship as signposts to God's love for us. So we're all familiar with the idea that the Bible um, calls God our Father. And so that means that the, the absolute best human Father gives us a tiny little glimpse of God's fatherly love for us. And actually, if you, if you have a, had an absent or terrible Father, or just an imperfect Father... You can like long for God's fatherly love in, in the midst of that, right? The Bible gives us marriage as a picture of a specific picture of, of Jesus' sacrificial love for his bride, and that language of being one flesh together, that, that sexual intimacy is like a, a picture um, of the, the kind of one-bodiness that we experience with Jesus when we put our trust in him, the, the unity that we experience with him if, if we are a follower of Jesus. So there are, there are sort of specific things about the sexual relationship at the, um, that's you know, an important part of marriage and about the, you know, the, the fact that children can be brought into the world, etc. that sort of point us to that dimension of Jesus's love for us. And we also find in friendship, which is not only to be experienced in, in same-sex uh, contexts. Um, I think there's, richness in being having friends of the opposite sex as well but i would want to say like probably especially experienced in same-sex um relationships that, that that actually also uniquely and beautifully points us to jesus's love for us too so at the end of the day as with with any anything else any other area of life we need to look at what what the bible says if we're a follower of jesus we need to look at what the bible says and take our our cues from that It's not always going to be the case that you know God doesn't actually owe us an explanation for everything, Um, as my friend Rachel is is fond of pointing out. If we only obey God when we understand and agree with Him, we're not actually obeying God. We are doing what we you know think is right ourselves. So there, you know, there have been times in my life, you know, certainly um, earlier in my life when. I would be more than happy to come to the Bible and find, you know what, um, it, it does allow room for same-sex marriage for Christians. It would have been, been made my life a lot more convenient in certain ways. Um, but when God says no to something, it's actually never because he's trying to deprive us of something good. And we see that from the very beginning of the Bible when, uh, in the story sort of Adam and Eve in the garden, and God has given Adam and Eve this one rule Just like you've got all this amazing stuff. Relationship with me, relationship with each other, all these fruits and all the wonderful things in the garden. It's one tree you can't eat from. And Eve looks at the fruit and she's like, fruit fruit looks really good. Um, And Satan's telling her, he's basically telling her God doesn't really love you. You know, God is trying to keep something good from you. And actually you should trust me and not God instead of try and take it yourself. But if Jesus died on the cross for you, If he, like, became flesh, lived in our weird world, and and suffered death for you and for me, there is no question that Jesus doesn't love you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And so if his word says no to something that looks good to you, maybe trust him that he knows his creation and he knows you better than you know yourself.
0: Thank you. Um, just flagging to everyone, uh, we have way too many questions. We're going to get even close to today. So I'm just going to take a couple that came through in order. Um, one of them is, is quite a personal question towards you, but I'm sure it's one you've been asked many, many times. Not least given what you've said today about friendship and the way in which the church has been to function as friendship, uh, you're a same-sex, same-sex attracted woman who is married uh, to an American, for a start, um, uh, but to a man. Um, how does your personal story fit in with what you've been saying today?
1: It's interesting. I think um, f- for a long time there's been a kind of public narrative which says basically you're, you're either sort of straight or you're gay and there's maybe a sort of tiny sliver of people um, who who could be in a relationship with somebody of, of either sex, but most probably it's because they're in denial and they actually uh, are gay and, and they just kind of haven't really got their head around it. And I think that's something that's still uh, pretty prevalent as an understanding um, in our culture today. Interestingly, uh, in actual fact, um, there's a woman called Lisa Diamond, who's a professor at University of America. She's not a Christian at all. She's actually herself a lesbian, sort of coming to these questions, not from the same angle as I am, but just from a purely kind of uh, academic perspective. And her research on large-scale data sets has shown that actually about 14% of women... Experience same-sex attraction, but only one percent are exclusively attracted to other women to where they couldn't authentically be married to a man, for instance. For men, it's about seven percent who experience same-sex attraction, and two percent who are exclusively attracted to their same sex. So, actually, I'm I'm the most typical kind of person in the kind of, you know, under if you're going to put me under an LGBT umbrella, it's not the kind of language I would particularly use of myself, but like somebody a, a, a woman. Who is attracted to her same sex, but not exclusively so, to where it wouldn't be very sort of practical to be married to a man? Um, I, ha- I mean, I've been happily married for 16 years. Um, Any time that I have ever found myself attracted to somebody outside our marriage, it's always been to another woman. So I sometimes joke to my husband, at least he knows I'll never leave him for another man. Um, <laughs> I'm, I have no plans to leave him for another. Woman either because i would be not i would be walking work, out not, not only on him but actually also on jesus so so i'm not as weird as i look i mean i'm actually kind of weird but not for that reason i'm a, a sort of surprisingly surprisingly typical
0: we can get back to the comedy debating stuff again later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: and the question for all of us actually if i if i asked for a show of hands i'm not going to but just imagine if i said raise your hand if you've ever been attracted to someone you're not married to you know my guess is most of us would have a little poor in the air right the question isn't, are you ever attracted to someone you're not married to? The question is, are you going to submit your attractions to Christ? Are you going to trust Jesus with that? Whether you're married or single, whatever, you know, whether you're ex- attracted to your same sex or to the opposite sex. It's sort of almost in the weeds, right? All of us, if, we're, if, you know, if you're married and you're attracted to somebody, either male or female, outside your marriage, that's a sinful desire, and you've got to say no to it, right? So to some extent, we're all in the same boat. Um, I think there are... There are of course like some complexities for somebody who's attracted to their same sex when it comes to, to friendship. I feel like, you know, on the one hand I don't have to worry about finding myself attracted to other men. That's great. You know, it makes my life much easier in some respects. But on the other hand, you know, I sort of there are times when I have to kind of be, be careful in context of, of same sex friendship. All of us have different different stuff,
0: I think. Thanks. I really appreciate your honesty there. Um, last one, um, question from the floor. Um, I'm, I'm just going to repeat the question without you know, validating the assumptions built into it. Um, Middle-class, middle-aged men, not great at making new friendships, um, observationally, anecdotally, um, <laughs> compared to... Is this...
1: Is this uh, a friend of mine has a question, <laughs> but... Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. that's
0: right, that's right. I, uh, Asking for no, a friend. No-one's one, no allowed to check the messages on my phone afterwards. Uh, well, wow, thanks for being that awkward. Sorry, on, no. come in, brother. Anyway, so um, middle-class, middle-aged men, uh, this is a real quick. I'm not making this up like, as like a pastoral point. Like, this is one of the things I've really been trying to get across the congregation, and here's my moment. Um, back to the start, middle-class, middle-aged men seem to really struggle to make new friendships compared to uh, middle-aged women. Uh, observationally in our area, what is it that men can learn from women about the making of new friendships?
1: I think I'll just speak to all of us, regardless of whether we're middle class, middle age, or men, because um, I have the sort of same advice for everybody. Um, take some initiative. Uh, Recognise that you actually do need friends. And I think it can be especially if we're going to talk about middle-class middle-aged men i think actually married men can especially struggle because some of their basic kind of relational needs will be hopefully met in in the context of their marriage and in the context of hanging out with their kids so they may not sort of realize their desperate need for friendship um as soon as they as they should And so, because they don't realize that, and and there's a lot of, you know, maybe you have a job, maybe you have a wife, maybe you have children, there's, like, a lot of demands on your time, you think, well, friendship's kind of a nice-to-have, right? It's not really, like, a, a truly important thing. And I think that can also leave, especially single people, kind of feeling really kind of cut out, because maybe they had a friend, they were really close friends, and then their friend got married, and, like, suddenly they feel like they're not part of things anymore, or, like, married people seem to want to hang out with each other, um... That's junk. Like, single people, you are welcome. And and married people include your single friends. Like, don't make them feel like because you've sort of crossed this marriage threshold that they're no longer a a valued part of your lives because you are missing out if that's what you're doing. You are missing out uh, on your single brothers and sisters. And your children are missing out on the investment and example that your single brothers and sisters, um, the role they could have in their lives. But I think, yeah, take the initiative, recognize, do you know what? I actually need, I need friends uh, to support me, to encourage me, to challenge me, to tell me when I'm wrong. Like, you need, I'm not speaking, sorry. <clears throat> I don't know, I don't know him at all. So I'm not, I'm actually not being that, I mean, I'm The congregation not being will love this
0: moment. Please I'm point away, point away. Um,
1: in, a, in a marriage relationship, there are of course ways in which we can kind of challenge and encourage each other. And that's all good. But actually, we all need a sort of peer friend who will be the person who will say to us, do you know what? I see what you're doing there, and it's not okay. Or, do you know what? You have a a gift in this area that you could be using, and I'm going to kick you out of bed to use it. Like, we actually all really thrive when we have that kind of friend relationship. And I I would hazard to say even that I think a lot of affairs happen because of a lack of friendship. We're we're not actually designed to have all our relational needs met by one other person. However great they are, however great your marriage is, fantastic. We're actually all designed to to, to need a variety of, of love relationships in our life. And I think we're kind of starving ourselves and each other of friendship. And I think maybe, not always, but maybe, often, women kind of recognize that quicker. And some of our norms around intimacy are, are more intimate. So in the U.K., for example, men don't really hug each other. In the U.S., they do, which is great. I don't know about Australia. Do you boys hug each other, maybe?
0: You could watch after church, see what happens.
1: Okay, I'll watch, I'll watch. But, like, women, we're sort of more comfortable being, like, physically connected to each other. And if you read the New Testament, you see that there, right? When Jesus is talking to his disciples the night that he's betrayed, one of his disciples, the author of John's Gospel, is like, Lent up against, like cuddled up with him, right? It was completely normal behaviour. But not. We, we've, we've lost that. We've lost the sort of physical intimacy that is actually our birthright in Christ Jesus, whether we're male or female, whether we're middle class, middle aged or men.
0: I actually saw that um, a couple of years ago, I saw the, a whole bunch of uh, kind of Victorian era um, paintings of virile young men after hunting expeditions all draped all over each other, all over lounges. And... In our culture, we would immediately assume that that must necessarily be a, a homoerotic expression or an orgy about to happen. Um, whereas, actually, this was just a normative standard for just men who appreciate each other as friends, uh, regardless of anything else.
1: Yeah, and a last thought on that, if if you, like me, as somebody who experiences the same-sex attraction to what degree or another, it can be tempting to think, okay, I need to be really careful. Like, I, need to, I basically can't pursue, like, close friendship because... What if I screw up kind of thing? You can have this like retreat, retreat, retreat mentality. I actually think that's the quickest way to end up in sexual sin. Because if you deprive yourself of the good things that God is giving to, you know, giving to all of us. If if I deprive myself of like close, real female friendship with a number of friends, not just with that one person, but like with a variety of, of close friends. If I'm starved, I'm, I'm more likely to be grasping for the thing that, that I shouldn't have. It's a bit like, um, you know, if you're really hungry, if you haven't eaten a proper, like, healthy meal, you're much more likely to grab for junk food, right? So, all of us, we've sort of, if we're starving ourselves relationally of the good things that God is giving us, we are more likely to reach for sexual sin, whatever our patterns of attraction. So, let's not be stupid like that.
0: That's a good place to land. Let's not be stupid like that, friends. Um, With that in mind, um, will you please thank Rebecca?